I mean, it is interesting, right, that, like, we were living out in the woods for so many years, and we were really accustomed to, like, being isolated. Hello, beloved survivors. I'm Autumn Brown, and this is How to Survive the End of the World, a podcast about learning from apocalypse with grace, rigor, and curiosity. The other voice you're hearing is my eldest child, Finn. However, um, so one time um, in science class um, for the warm-up we did, um, we actually did something called um, uh, what 10 things would you um, bring onto a deserted island? As the series has unfolded, one of the emergent themes is the necessity of adaptation under apocalyptic conditions. As our reality changes, or as our reality is unveiled to us, We must iterate on how we have practiced and what we have built so that we can build new practices and the new worlds that are necessary for our survival. As the pandemic unveils the reality of healthcare in this country and the violence of what healing justice activist Kara Page refers to as the disease economy, we are confronted with the need to adapt how healthcare is delivered. But even more than that, We are confronted with the need to rewrite the very assumptions that underpin this system. That the body is a commodity, that health is a product, and that some lives are disposable, whereas others are worthy of extraordinary measures to save. The models of care delivery here in the US can feel monolithically bad, but part of my political work over the last 15 years has been in service of connecting and uplifting the alternative economies of care and alternative practices that already exist. I didn't have to look too far to find the right person to have this conversation with. I'm grateful to welcome Dr. Anjali Taneja to the show. Anjali is a family physician and a DJ who is passionate about reimagining healthcare and healing in the US. She is board certified in family medicine and addiction medicine. She's also the executive director of Casa de Salud in Albuquerque, New Mexico. And she works in the emergency room of a small rural hospital in the Navajo Nation. From 2007 to 2013, Anjali curated Cure This, which was an online community space for discussion around new models of care. I remember reading her work before I met her. I finally met Anjali in 2010 shortly after she served as a lead coordinating member of the People's Movement Assembly for Healing Justice and Liberation at the U.S. Social Forum in Detroit. She also oversaw the medic response team of volunteers at that event, which was attended by over 18,000 people. Now, a bit about Casa de Salud. Um, Casa de Salud is a clinic. It's a culturally humble and anti-racist nonprofit model of care clinic that integrates primary care, queer and transgender care, harm reduction, addiction treatment, acupuncture, Reiki, massage, and indigenous-based healing circles for uninsured, immigrant, and other marginalized communities in Albuquerque. The clinic also trains 30 health apprentices a year who are primarily young students of color interested in healing and healthcare fields and prepares them for careers in health and healing. Um, I'm really excited to introduce Anjali and to introduce Casa to our listeners. You're going to hear a lot more about Casa de Salud's model and history in the interview. So let's jump right in. The story of our organization is 
pretty fascinating and is very much um, the reason why I wanted to join it. I was I, I was not part of the founding team, but back in the early two thousands. Um, there was a group called the Community Coalition for Healthcare Access, or CCHA, that was working to respond to gaps in care and gaps in access to care and a number of other issues on the ground that um, community members, residents, patients, practitioners saw as critical. At the time, in the early 2000s, um, fully... 25% or one out of every four residents in New Mexico did not have health insurance. Mm. That percentage is not very different from where uh, folks in a lot of other states were pre-Affordable Care Act. Um, mm-hmm. And healthcare institutions, uh, though doing critically important work, and you know, I always have to say uh, staffed by amazing healthcare providers at every level of expertise and um, service were, were existed in, in a way that created gaps in various areas, um, including, I'll talk about this, including around cultural humility, including around financial mm. access and transparency, including around what gatekeeping created um, language access and interpretation, um, kind of the industry of healthcare and the way time is rationed um, for for care, the way race and racism play a role, and um, the way healthcare institutions create barriers inadvertently to care. Mm -hmm. And then healthcare workers are plugging into those institutions and sometimes know about and sometimes really don't know about a lot of the um, uh, barriers and problems that perhaps exist um, in their institutions. Mm. So at that time, uh, a group of organizations, patients, community health workers, healthcare providers were taking a 10-step process to asking the Safety Net Hospital, which was University of New Mexico Hospital, um, to provide to make changes on the way that they provided care for um, folks who had traditionally been marginalized from society and uh, from healthcare. Can you just explain what you mean when you say a 10-step process? Oh, back in the early 2000s, there was a, a, a demand, a, ten, a list of 10 demands um, that related to the issues that I noted around lang- language access, um, financial transparency, um, relief of medical debt burdens, other different things that were being asked of of the local healthcare systems, mm. and in that process, there was also a move to create a system that better responded to the needs of the community. And at that time, in the South Valley of Albuquerque, which is culturally rich and diverse, with a number of um, populations of folks who've been there for generations, as well as more recent immigrants. Um, many Spanish-speaking families um, that had South Valley of Albuquerque also was part of a trade route for um, heroin and other drugs. And a lot of folks um, were dealing with intergenerational traumas and intergenerational drug use um, mm. in the South Valley. Also, a ton of 
industrial and environmental injustices in that area that no doubt contributed to um, people's livelihoods and their uh, incidence of chronic medical conditions. Right. Um, right. And then a paucity of healthcare services, um, their behavioral health, mental health, um, uh, healthcare as compared to the rest of the county. And all of that was representative and represented in the fact that there are parts of the South Valley that have a 15 year decrease in life expectancy compared to the rest of the county that Albuquerque. Holy shit. Wow. So so because of all of that, um, there was a move to create a clinic that was able to address, fill this gap, um, as well as rebuild trust with the community. A lot of um, folks don't necessarily interact with healthcare systems because there's a lack of trust um, Mm. based in years of feeling cast aside or Mm. needs not being met um, or racism or inability to work with people from a um, trauma-informed process, things like that. So health promoters, promotoras, um, traditional healers, Western medical clinicians came together to create what was called at the time Topakal Hmm. um, Family Medical Office. And so Topakal was a part of, was adjacent to, on the land of the Kalpuli Iskali uh, traditional Mexican healers work Hmm. and collaboration. So um, on the front of the land was the the Kalpuli Iskali made up of uh, traditional women healers providing a range of um, healing practices. There was a sweat lodge and then behind that um a three or four room casita got converted into a small walk-in clinic that could um that first of all the walk-in aspect was a critical access piece um because if you called clinics in the area at that time there would be two to three month waiting list with uh, without a lot of ability for walk-in care so meeting the needs immediately Mm -hmm. in that way as well as a financial structure that best responded to community needs. It was $25 for a visit, pay if you can, and only pay at the end of the visit. Um, So you get your care first, and then you make the decisions about payment. No bills sent to people's homes, no people's accounts that went to collections. We are not in the business of increasing um, emotional and financial burden on on patients who are going through, struggling with things. So Mm -hmm. it became it was pretty popular and integrated Western medical care with clinicians who were passionate about nutrition, exercise, um, uh, integrating with other healers in a way that was respectful and understanding. Like, for example, I'm a physician, I'm a family doc, and I don't try to do acupuncture or um, <laughs> do herbal medicine, but I have mm-hmm. great respect for my colleagues in those areas who've trained in those areas. And so therefore I partner with them to provide care in the same place. Um, right. And I see that as critically important because there's a lot of folks who are trying, I'll do a little bit of acupuncture or learn a little bit. Like, why not we just partner with people who are experts in their medicine and work together? <laughs> like, how about? Coordinated <laughs> yeah. Way. yeah. So, so, that was built. Um, all the practitioners spoke Spanish. Um, um, a walk-in clinic that was available also on 
evenings, which is critical. Um, most of the clinics in the area did, and to a great extent still do, only provide care during 8, 8 a.m. to 5 p.m. business hours. And a lot wow. of people work, and it becomes challenging to get care when you need to. So we immediately off the bat, you know, had evening hours, had Saturday hours, um, things like that. And so it was a place where people could rebuild trust with healthcare and, you know, they could get referred in from a healer that they were seeing in the community, um, or they could find out about it otherwise by word of mouth. It was all word of mouth um, information. And it became a pretty busy walk-in clinic. We did all kinds of procedures, women's health, um, physical health, integrating different types of medicines. There was a naturopathic doctor on board, um, acupuncture, Reiki, um, curanderismo, uh, with one of the founding clinicians at the clinic who is currently at the clinic, who's a nurse practitioner and a curandera, a traditional Mexican healer. Wow. All of these were provided and integrated and people could self-select into which of these they wanted to um, uh, receive and also be in a place where they knew that everyone was really on the same page and spent the amount of time with each patient that needed to be spent. Um, so mm-hmm. a lot of people's experience with going to the doctor is they have 10 minutes, they're on their computer typing in things that people are saying because those 10 minutes include the visit with the patient and any charting that needs to be done before the next patient is ready. We have right. a right. spacious, expansive amount of time with patients, 30 minutes, sometimes more, um, up to an hour for Western medical care. And then obviously some of the other modalities um, uh, are you know, straight up one hour or more. So that was a walk-in clinic set up that became pretty popular. It was very accessible. People could get care, rebuild trust with healthcare. And it became popular enough that neighbors were like, what's going on? And after a couple of years, we <laughs> moved to the building that we're currently in. And mm. then in 2013, we doubled the size of the building that we're currently in. And wow. We currently have um, employed staff all employed staff with benefits who are a range of, among the clinicians who include doctors, nurse practitioners, physician assistants, um, nurses, as well as a doctor of oriental medicine, who's our acupuncturist, um, a Reiki master, who is also our ear detox specialist, another modality, and two massage therapists, and uh, a curandera. So we have all of these folks on staff who work together in the same space, working as a clinic, not as individual kind of private businesses referring to each other. And so that's an integral piece of what Mm -hmm. we do. And I wish there were more clinics that were doing this work, especially in regards to access to marginalized communities, because it feels so important um, to work on mind, body, soul, uh, trauma, all of these things from this perspective and to rebuild trust with communities. So I'll just mention our, our clinic right now um, is we primarily work with marginalized communities, but we're open to everybody and lots of different folks come access our care, millennials, you know, all over the place. Mm-hmm. <laughs> but <laughs> primarily we are serving low-income folks, um, monolingual Spanish-speaking patients, uh, recent immigrants, um, queer and transgender uh, residents in the count in the county, and honestly beyond. Uh, I just saw uh, a trans patient who comes to us from a hundred miles away to get care. Wow. Um, 
um, as well as uh, folks who are people who are using drugs who access our syringe exchange services, so they can mm-hmm. bring in their used syringes and exchange them for new ones, um, and to be able to shoot safer as, as they are injecting, but also get education about doing so, and you know to gently have nudges and openness around the ability to get treatment if they're ready or want to, and mm-hmm. then we have a pretty robust, very integrated. Um, opioid addictions treatment program um, at our clinic that integrates all the modalities together, along with uh, evidence-based medication treatment, um, and comes from a harm reduction frame, which I'll talk a little bit more about. Um, but that's uh, that's that's our model of care. And on the finance, so eighty percent of our seventy-five to eighty percent of our patients currently do not have health insurance. So yeah, I was just going to ask whether the. Um... Well, I had like two questions and yeah. it sounds like you're going there, but I was going to ask one, if the passing of the Affordable Care Act in any way um, shifted the way the financial part of your model worked, um, if it helped at all, or if it created yeah. new barriers or uh, new challenges. And then I was going to ask just out of interest, how you all are able to finance your operations given... Sure the the access access model that you're working with absolutely so um yeah so i mentioned that before the affordable care act fully 25 percent of new mexicans did not have access to health insurance which is extremely challenging um, and where healthcare systems had financial discounts but for a lot of people those prices were still extremely prohibitive um, and right. also back then in 2004, part of the work, that was the year we started, part of the work we were doing was trying to hold our safety net hospital accountable because they were charging patients 50% upfront for non-emergency surgeries. Oh and a non-emergency surgery is, I can't walk, I need a hip replacement for a hip that has been debilitating pain-wise and you know has not allowed me to work for the last several years. And my orthopedic surgeon says that this is critical. It's not, I'm in a trauma, I'm in a car accident, I need emergency surgery, but it's a critical surgery. So, I would have had yeah. to pay like $15,000 up front before I could get the surgery and then pay the rest off in a period of time. And so our coalition at that time pushed really hard against that and over time was able to reverse that, which is critical for wow. the safety net hospital in our community, which which is you know tasked and has federal funding and state funding to really provide care for low income folks. It's just baffling so, to me that that is a that is a process that was unfolding at the safety net hospital. That is it, just mind boggling. Absolutely, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yes, yeah. In in a in a state which you know there's only three main hospital systems in a large catchment area. We're a urban rural state. Um, of two million people, with a lot of uh, low-income folks in 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 the whole state, and okay. a lot of need. So we cur- so we um, great question about the ACA. So when the Affordable Care Act uh, passed, we were so grateful that our Republican governor was one of the first governors to expand Medicaid. As mm-hmm. you probably know, a number of states in the Southeast still in 2020 have not 
expanded Medicaid as part right. of the FDA. Like refuse to do so. Right? Refuse to do so or actively fighting against it even now in the midst of COVID-19 when that can only benefit both hospitals and the state because the feds are still paying more than 90% of all costs associated with expanding Medicaid. Um, right. And at the time in 2011 or so, 2012, it was, they were, feds were going to pay 100%. So our Republican governor was one of the few Republican governors who immediately worked to um, expand access to Medicaid. And we are a state right now that has a significant proportion of our patients accessing Medicaid. Like I said, we're a poorer state. Um, Mm -hmm. We have, you know, about 40% of our um, population in New Mexico has Medicaid. So at that time, we started working to accept Medicaid. These were exactly the same patients that we had had before who Mm -hmm. now had access to this. state Medicaid program. Right. Um, and so over the last you know number of years, we've been working to expand access. And so we now see still 75% to 80% of our patients being uninsured. And then the remainder 20 to 25% are patients who have Medicaid. And that number is expanding um, mm-hmm. at our clinic. So our, our, we primarily see those two groups, meaning groups of patients who fall into the, the uninsured and uh, Medicaid group. And we've contracted with Medicaid's Medicaid is, it's just amazing. People aren't, they don't have to pay a copay. They don't have to ever pay a copay. They don't have to pay for their meds. Um, We don't believe in copays. We don't like this idea of people having insurance, but then still having to have another transaction of money at their primary care clinic or the hospital or wherever. Mm. And so we can still hold that value and accept Medicaid and provide care for people for free. And some of that money is going to subsidize the care that we do that is not reimbursed care for uninsured folks and care um, in the integrative healing modalities that we provide. Right. We're fighting for, but we don't have in New Mexico the ability for acupuncture to be reimbursed by Medicaid. And then Reiki and massage are not reimbursed by Medicaid. Right. So, right. so those are our two patient populations. And then financially, like you were asking, we're, as an organization, really passionate about having a sustainable business model that is not a free clinic model where we would be depending on rich white people to make the organization function. Mm. Um, And that is not a model where people are having to dig deep into their pockets or, um, you know, uh, deal with a lot of other huge administrative burdens of working with a lot of insurances or things like that. Um, so mm-hmm. we, we kind of have a one-third, one-third, one-third piece. We have one-third of our income is revenue generation from patients paying their bills, which each visit right now is $40 with a practitioner. Mm-hmm. Um, and we have some significant county funds, which we're grateful for, to pro- help subsidize that care or make that care entirely free. So it's mm-hmm. kind of a sliding scale model um, where a majority of people will pay the $40 and then some people won't. And we that's up front that people yeah. don't have to. Um, and then our Medicaid revenue is fairly decent. You know, Medicaid pays probably twice or more than twice what a self-paid discount cost of care is for patient mm-hmm. care. So mm-hmm. that, that helps us take care of everybody. Um, and then one third of our income is from um, uh, grants and uh, individual donations, and then one third of our income is from contracts that we have with the county, the city, the state to provide critical services like syringe exchange, which I talked about, which we yeah. want to do all in one space so that people have this like one place 
respectful, dignified, um, friendly place to go um, mm-hmm. where they can get all different kinds of services and opt in to any of them. Nothing is mandated. We will be back with more of my conversation with Anjali in a moment, but first an offering. So many of us have lost beloveds to COVID-19 and so many of us will. And we are creating a space to honor those losses here on the podcast. In the final episode of the series, we will read aloud the names of those who have been lost. So if you wish to send the name of a loved one, for us to read out loud, please email it to us at howtosurvivepod at gmail.com. Please do include guidance on how to correctly pronounce your loved one's name. Grieving together is part of how we survive and how we remember life. We hope you will let us hold a part of your grief. Okay, back to my conversation with Anjali. This show, this podcast is about apocalypse and survival, obviously, and our whole, you know, um, the whole theory that kind of underpins the way we have conversations on this show is the idea that it is communities most marginalized under capitalism, under white supremacy, under patriarchy, under all of these systems. It is the communities that are already surviving these systems that have the most to teach us about how to survive conditions of collapse. Um, and I, I was wondering if you could speak to, um, I mean, you already teed this up in terms of talking about the, the, the various healthcare practices and the, some of the indigenous healing practices that are already integrated into your clinic. But I was wondering if you could speak a little bit more on what practices were already circulating in the communities that come to you as patients that you then integrated into the clinic space and yeah, some gems from your experience working collaboratively with patients who are to some extent guiding their own care. Sure. Absolutely. Um, So we, we, we built this space in part because we wanted to better respond to how people were currently accessing care, what, what, um, which kind of healers and support networks they felt supported by, they accessed, and how to build, you know, a Western medical piece around that. So the the modalities that we currently um, offer for healing are informed um, by knowing, by learning from patients who they went to. And obviously our partnership with Kalpuli Iskali in 2004 um, meant that a lot of community who were accessing Curanderismo and a number of other modalities um, with the Kalpuli and otherwise were saying, oh, I need this other care too. And this is amazing. This is happening right here. Um, we are, we are uh, uh, um friends and colleagues with the Kalpuli is Kali now, but back in 2007, when the move happened to the building where we are right now, um, the the two Topakal at that time um, and Kalpuli uh, kind of split and are still very close to each other. And we transformed into Casa de Salud and gave them the name Topakal um, out oh, of respect. Oh, beautiful. So, 
so we still work with the Kalpuli and they've done workshops on um, with community members with us around um, gardening and around uh, creating your own medicine through food and a number mm-hmm. of other things. And we refer patients to each other and we're, you know, maybe a mile away from each other still. Wow, that's so um, cool. But all of that informed, you know, how we built the modalities that we have. We also... We've also been doing harm reduction work since 2005, since the first year of our time as a small three-room casita-turned-clinic in the mm-hmm. South Valley. And we are so grateful to the State Department of Health, who has been... New Mexico was at the forefront of responding to uh, the opioid crisis mm-hmm. and dealt with significant intergenerational drug use and heroin for for probably generations before the 90s when pharmaceutical companies are implicated in um, creating and worsening the Mm -hmm. opioid drug epidemic. Like this existed for many prior years in New Mexico and that often gets erased. (laughs) There's like a starting point of when the crisis happened. Um, Mm. And so that was another gap that we saw, like their healthcare institutions are not doctors, Nurses are not right now well positioned to respond in a non-stigmatizing way to folks who are using drugs, um, or they are, but the institutions in which they work in are not. Or you know, drug users are have some trust issues with large healthcare and how they'll in, in you know in, work with them or how they'll treat with them. So yeah. we had built that immediately, and so for the last fifteen years, we've had um, a pretty robust syringe exchange, Narcan distribution for overdose uh, prevention, as well as, um, you know, having the works, being able to educate people and provide some tools around how they can use drugs more safely so that they can reduce transmission of HIV, hepatitis C, skin infections, um, Mm -hmm. harm to themselves through other kind of overwhelming infections. And, And, you know, perhaps also with this idea of dignity and partnering with our community, many folks will want to pursue treatment and have some other abilities and, and, and function different functions in their lives. So with that, we understood very quickly that patient, people would come to us and bring a lot of syringes and we would give them a lot of syringes and they would distribute those out to peer networks of folks. So there was already this somewhat self-organized way of supporting each other and bringing um, syringes and getting uh, new syringes for for a number of folks in the community mm, to use, yeah. and so teaching people who were bringing those to us um, about shooting safer and other things were were ways in which that they then passed on to to other folks. Um, we also have our healing circles, which are indigenous based, um, two to three hour long circles at our clinic with a curandera and our Reiki master and Iraqi detox specialist and. Um, holding space and having a sacred feather in an in indigenous tradition where one, one person is speaking, that person is holding the feather and only that person is speaking and everyone's listening and that feather is passed around. There's a, you know, a theme and deep talk around shame or something else, another topic, and then a variety of healing modalities, including Olympia or a traditional Mexican cleansing, um, Iraqi detox and Reiki that is provided to patients to be able to relax, cleanse out feelings, 
and everything that they kind of talked about or shared that may have been hard that day. And the formation of that and how we offer that has been informed greatly by, um, by our patients. And the entire way in which we do our treatment program for people who are using opioid um, opioids uh, is is based on feedback that we have gotten from patients about what's working, what's not working. We had a lot wow. of folks first starting, and then we had kind of a set of mandatory things that folks would do to get through the first phase and then go from there. And a lot of people struggled with that and dropped off. And so we have flipped our entire program based on what people are telling us either verbally or through their actions um, Mm -hmm. to have a low barrier access point to get in. Someone says, I'm looking for Suboxone. I'm ready to stop heroin. We can provide that that day, next day, within a week, and then build around the other services around them and have healing modalities and therapy and other things that are opt-in to them. So giving them that decision-making power, which doesn't happen a lot in treatment programs around the country. There's this prescribed way that each place has. Um, And those are part of the harm reduction modalities with um, principles. Um, Mary Hawk and others wrote about, like specifically wrote out harm reduction principles and broke it down. And we utilize these in every aspect of the work that we do. And that includes things like, you know, autonomy. And, you know, we can negotiate care with patients instead of having a paternalistic way of of treating them. Um, humanism, that's the dignity, Um, pragmatism, like we don't come from an abstinence only model, people can use multiple drugs, and we can still treat them for their heroin use, and then use that space to build trust and dignity to then support them on their meth use and support them on, you know, treatment for hepatitis C or their their physical health or emotional health issues. Um, And, you know, an accountability without termination, that's a whole huge piece of harm reduction, where we're going to work with you. We'll be. We're going to treat you with dignity. We'll hold you accountable to things and really ask you to go deep with some things. But we're not going to kick you out. We don't have a three strikes law where you have three quote unquote dirty urines and and you're kicked out of our program. So those those are programmatic related, but very much are infused through the way that we do our work with the clinic. And I'll yeah. say one more thing because I'm talking mm-hmm. a lot. But um, no, I I love it. <laughs> we, <laughs> I'm like, (laughs) with our community, we we are trying to see healthcare differently and we're trying to connect with other organizations around the country um, to really build more of this thinking and how we do it. Um, We are not a federally qualified health center. We don't get um, money from the feds uh, to do our work. And we have intentionally chosen to be an independent nonprofit health center instead of an FQHC for a variety of reasons that relate to, you know, the kind of administrative burden and largesse that needs to happen with FQHCs. Um, The ability for us to provide care in a way that integrates all modalities and that's nimble and doesn't have a lot of bureaucracy, all of those things are, that's a whole other conversation we could get into. But Mm. one thing that we're afforded in our model is the ability to think about health care differently outside of the clinic setting. So we want to, like, we'll, we feel like we'll die trying. We don't know if we'll get there, but we are aiming to build power with our community. And what does it mean for a health care clinic or institution of any sort or size to build power with community? Not just I'm giving you health care, but right. your leader 
you know, you have survived X or Y or Z, or you're uh, brilliant. How do we partner with community to do things differently? And we've done that over the years. Again, we'll die trying. I, I, there's lots of ways that we can criticize what we've done or we haven't gotten to where we want to, but this is a journey for us and something that we're committed to doing as a small institution that is situated in community. We have um, we've built some really strong relationships with uh, community agencies, with neighborhood groups, things like that. Mm-hmm. And with our patients, we've taken issues like overwhelming medical debt that they may get from hospitals, you know, in the thousands of dollars and work from a direct service place of let's help you navigate that debt of uh, this is how we deal with this collections agency, or this is how we get, you know, a little bit more help from this hospital, or this is how you can advocate for yourself. And um, over a number of years, helped Bernalillo County residents decrease their overwhelming financial debt from hospitals by over two million dollars. Wow. wow! Holy That's, shit! Which is about two and a half million dollars at this point, um, probably in the last four or five years. And we're continuing to do that kind of direct service work, but also we built a patient coalition around folks who are uh, trained up in media skills to be able to advocate. Um, some of the first folks who helped build the clinic were people who were patients who became activated and uh, fought for changes uh, in the safety net hospital and how they did their billing. And in the last year, two years, we've done a couple other things with folks in our um, addictions treatment program. We, we intentionally call people leaders when they come in instead of the idea that they would be treated and kind of re-traumatized with ideas of shame coming from a clinic. Right. And we've built out kind of this vision and implemented um, popular education workshops around how folks who are using drugs or who are in treatment can teach other folks in the community about the history of the drug war, um, resilience, mm-hmm. how trauma acts on our bodies, things like that, and activate them to help make change, work on advocacy issues, work on systems change issues. Because So many people are like, I'm coming out the other side of my recovery and I want to help people right. in a more impactful right. way who are just right. starting out. Um, and we recently implemented a leadership survey, primarily among our harm reduction, our syringe exchange clients, but also among our patients who were in treatment um, to get a better sense of what kinds of leadership activities are they currently involved in? Because we don't want to make the assumption that they're not. Yeah, and they're not, right? what are they looking for in the future? And now we're seeking some funding and partnerships to think about how we can partner with community members, meet them at whatever level they are, and work on leadership development and community change with them. Wow. Um, and it is, I mean, everything you're describing is, I mean, it's so visionary. And it's also, it, it sounds like incredibly difficult work because you're you're inviting people into leadership and decision-making over a type of institution that, um, you know, in most contexts, for most people with a U.S. healthcare experience, like uh, healthcare institutions are completely opaque in terms of how decisions are made, in terms of what guides decision making, and who even is in control or has the power to make decisions. Um, so it's just like it's just amazing to to hear, and I imagine I can I can imagine like the challenges also just like the individual interpersonal, um, you know the. Yes. Yeah, the, the the challenges of 
of making that invitation, meeting and meeting that invitation and really adapting to what people say they actually want. Um, and so I just want to say, like, I commend you all so much for the work that you're doing. And it actually, I mean, you keep like teeing up my next question so beautifully because <laughs> this, um, what you just shared to for me feels like a really good segue into having a conversation um, about this current moment in medical care and some of the assumptions that underlie um, how we access care. And so the first thing I wanted to ask you is from your perspective as a medical practitioner, as a doctor, um, I wonder what you think the current pandemic unfolding has unveiled about our medical systems and how they operate, or perhaps even some of the assumptions that underlie how people typically access care um, that, you know, maybe maybe wasn't widely understood or known before, but is really, really obvious now. Yeah. Um, gosh, that's a big question. Um, Sorry. The, the, <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah, so... COVID-19 is definitely revealing um, for, for many of us the fractures that exist in our healthcare infrastructure. And for many others, it's not revealing anything. This is what their experience has been um, right, right. with healthcare. Um, I, there's so much to say here. Um, one... You know, we don't really have any kind of coordinated on the ground infrastructure in healthcare. And there's a million ways that we need to respond to what's going on. Healthcare is one piece. So I'm talking mainly about that piece. But mm -hmm. um, there's no coordinated way of responding to pandemics. And we see that right now with what's happening at the federal level and um, how the CDC has lost funding and has lost um, a lot of power in how um, response needs to look like. Um, public health departments all over the country um, have had budgets radically cut over the last decade, two decades. This is a bipartisan thing. This is not like a current current federal government situation. Um, mm. There's been less less and less of a priority given to them, which is very short-sighted. And our healthcare system is is privatized. You know, I was talking about New Mexicans previously, 25% of them didn't have health insurance. Currently, you know, 11 to 12% still don't have health insurance. Um, and, you know, across America, in the Southeast states, Medicaid has not been expanded. Their numbers are, you know, out of control in terms of who does not have easy access. And even having health insurance doesn't necessarily um, mm -hmm. mean easy access to healthcare. Right. Um, it's just a financial mechanism. Um, there's this idea right now also with if you're worried you may have COVID or if you have these symptoms, you know, go to your doctor, call your doctor. And that's such an archaic idea because I think most Americans don't have their doctor. They're, right. They're, I was just thinking that, like, I don't have a doctor, a quote unquote yeah. doctor that's my doctor. And how would I have that? Yeah, exactly. <laughs> <laughs> so this pandemic comes and it's like, okay, go, you know, go to your doctor to, to, to navigate this. And, you know, people who have their doctor or to go to a clinic, you know, clinics are overwhelmed. 
health systems are overwhelmed. We have privatized healthcare in America, which means each hospital is doing their own thing, and they're doing their own thing based on capitalism. And elective surgeries are what bring in money. So right now that we've stopped elective surgeries in order to preserve personal protective equipment for what's needed for COVID, you know, we're seeing the chance very quickly that hospitals in rural areas, low-income areas, um, but hospitals in general may go under at a time where we need them the most. Um, the whole way that healthcare providers are being treated in this is the first time that I'm really seeing um, a place where healthcare workers are are unified um, around mm. one issue. Like everyone's getting a sense, and I'm not talking about the local clinic level. That's a, another kind of picture. But in a hospital level, in like large system levels, folks are getting a sense of who's really out to support them and who's not. And we're seeing healthcare workers protest, demonstrate, um, sacrifice when they were not asked to sacrifice in this way, um, mm. not having the most basic personal protective equipment that is needed to not actively get infected and potentially die of COVID-19 while they're trying to support uh, people who need help. And I mean, this is criminal on so many levels mm -hmm. and the way the supply chain works with personal protective equipment, you know, and even with ICU beds and even with ventilators or private hospitals, you know, manage out what amount they need to turn a profit. They're not managing out what event, what, how many ventilators they would need in case of a pandemic that would not be profitable to them. So that's a whole part of why we have all these issues with the supply chain right now. And then the fact that all of this stuff is coming from um, uh, more so from other countries than from, from here. And I'm not even talking about the federal government's participation in the screwiness around uh, the right. criminal activity, I would say, around all of this. But healthcare workers are realizing that they are, you know, in, in many ways on their own um, trying to do this work. And they're, they're seeing their struggle now as tied with the struggle of folks in community in a much deeper way. And, and I don't mean to assume that healthcare workers are these elitist people who don't care and don't under, otherwise have an awareness, but there's such a melding of that now, um, which, which, is, which, which is stunning um, and is, 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 is not fair to the healthcare workers who are doing this, this work right now. Um, and yeah, the, what a moment to be politicized around this. It's like, exactly, yeah. yeah. And, and, you know, the way we're seeing COVID it, it, COVID is a is a colorblind, you know, wealth blind disease, but obviously in the way that it impacts um, our community sitting in a capitalist environment, all the capitalism is going to show up and is showing up. So, you know, everyone is affected and the, the, the numbers and amounts of people who are dying crosses all socioeconomic levels, all racial and ethnic levels, but the ways in which disproportionate impacts are happening on communities of color, um, on low-income folks, uh, on folks in congregate settings is just, it is just alarming and reveals the fractures in our ability to support people at, at, at various levels. And all of, it's so easy to say, oh, a lot of folks who are, or to come to conclusions about why a lot of black and brown people are um, dying right now from 
the from the virus in mm-hmm. disproportionate numbers. In Chicago, seventy percent of all people dying in Chicago are are, are black. Um, in St. Louis, for a while, at least until last week or a little bit before then, every single person who had died in the city was black. Um, uh, in 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 Queens, which is an epicenter in in New York City, um, a lot of immigrant communities are being just so greatly impacted, and people dying left and right. And a lot of folks have underlying medical conditions, and it's easy for people to come to conclusions of like, oh, people didn't take care of themselves or didn't trust or whatever else. But the way that underlying medical conditions like heart disease, diabetes, um, uh, chronic obstructive pulmonary disease, uh, a number of other um, uh, medical conditions are imprinted on bodies of black and brown people is because of all of the structural inequalities of exactly poverty and stress and um, lack of upward mobility and racism and the way that racism impacts um, impacts folks. So we're seeing all this and I worry about people coming to conclusions about um, it's already happening. You have a lot of people on the right saying, oh, this is just affecting people with multiple medical issues or, you know, people on their last legs anyway, which is so cruel and heartless um, oh, and is God. revealing a lot about a lot of people. Mm-hmm. Uh, but, but our healthcare system was never set up to support low income folks with severe medical issues. And those are the people who are getting um, impacted the most. And then our economic systems are not set up to support. So we have people, you know, living multi-generationally in families or in small apartments with numbers of other people, or the fact that, you know, I think 16, less than 20% of uh, black and brown folks have jobs in which they can isolate at home while significantly higher proportions of um, white and Asian folks have that. So all of these ways are revealing the ways that our economic systems and our healthcare systems um, are, are working. And then now seeing how many people are dying across the country in nursing homes um, mm. and the ways in which that data was not being collected. And now thanks to state's efforts and lo- local municipalities efforts that's starting to be collected, there's never been a plan for how to support nursing homes during a crisis. Like there's no plan. There's nothing written, written about that. Wow. In the past. And then folks in prisons and jails are incredibly susceptible right now in the medical care in prisons and jails is bad to negligent to start with and then putting this on right. top of it with people who have to pay for soap and pay copays to see a nurse in the jail um, is mm-hmm. is just horrific. So we're basically killing people, you know, for I think I had mentioned somewhere else that the first the first person to die in a federal prison in this country was a man who had been in prison for over 20 years for possession of crack. Um, so his death sentence came uh, for something that he shouldn't even have gone to jail for, uh, right. to prison for. Right. Um, so all of these ways. And, and then on a local level, and I'll stop there, on a local level, there isn't really a, a coordination infrastructure. Like, for example, my clinic, Casa de Salud, does, is not part of a network of organizations on the ground that in any way communicate with each other. And we could, we could be communicating with, um, you know, the 30 other clinics, whether they're federally qualified clinics, private for-profit clinics, primary care clinics, um, free clinics. We could have a pretty sophisticated, sophisticated communication system with them, with the city, with the county. Things are starting to be developed now, mm. but that, 
a healthcare system that is not based in the health of its community, but is based in the profits of the folks running things creates these these dynamics. I could say 15 more things about this, but I will, I will stop there. Wow. Thank you so much for this just incredible brilliance. Thank you. Thanks for tuning in to the Apocalypse Survival mini-series of How to Survive the End of the World. If you want to learn more about the past, present, and future of healthcare through a social justice lens, I invite you to check out a series of conversations Anjali developed in partnership with Kara Page and Susan Raffo on one of our favorite podcasts, Fortification, which is a show hosted by Caitlin Greenwood. Also, Anjali, Kara, and Susan have been developing an interactive historical timeline that explores the medical industrial complex. Um, So you have so much to learn from these three geniuses. You can find Fortification wherever you get your podcasts. We're nearing the end of this series, but we have a couple episodes left to share. Our next episode will feature a conversation on the complex question of arming and protecting ourselves in violent conditions. And our final episode will look at lessons learned from this series as a whole. How to Survive the End of the World is on Twitter and Instagram at End of the World PC. We're also on Facebook at End of the World Show. You can make a sustaining donation to our show by visiting our page at patreon.com slash end of the world show. We kind of can't believe the fact that people are still donating, even in the midst of what's happening in our economy right now. We're so grateful to all of you who are making this show possible. Thank you so much for supporting the work. Another incredibly helpful thing that you can do to help our show sustain itself is to write us a review on Apple Podcasts if you're an iPhone person. Music for today's show comes from Tunde Alaniran and Mother Cyborg. And How to Survive the End of the World is produced and edited by the incomparable Zach Rosen. A fun note about Zach. He just started releasing episodes of a brand new daily podcast that he's producing called The Best Advice Show. I've been listening and it's lovely. A little bit about the show. It's easy to feel helpless as each new day breeds more uncertainty. The Best Advice Show exists as a daily reminder that there are weird, delightful, and effective ways to survive and thrive in this world. In every episode of the show, A different contributor offers their own personal take on what they do to make their life better, healthier, saner, and more livable. Contributors include the poet Hanif Abdurraqib, the journalist Anne Friedman, my sister Adrienne Marie Brown, some dude Zach found on the internet, also Zach's wife is on the show, and also possibly you could be on the show. You can find it wherever you listen to your podcasts. We're proud of you, Zach. 